0: Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. This podcast is part of a series called Listening to the Stories of Healing. Within the series, you will hear stories from community and the very diverse experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and how these narratives have shaped the amazing work that is happening in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. Here at Emerging Minds, we like to call it the secret garden, the stories and experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't always get to see or hear. Whilst these stories include sadness and hurts and sometimes can feel uncomfortable to listen to, it is through listening to these narratives that you will get a glimpse of the deep wisdom, knowledge and healing practices of families and communities and understand why our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are part of the oldest continuing culture in the world. Welcome everyone, this is Dana Shen, an Aboriginal cultural consultant working with Emerging Minds. Becoming a parent is exciting, but it can also be hard, particularly for parents who have experienced difficulties in their own childhood, which can have long-lasting effects on physical, social and emotional well-being. The effects may be triggered during pregnancy and the transition to becoming a parent, causing distress and challenges for creating a nurturing environment for the new baby. On the flip side, growing research shows that becoming a parent offers a unique lifetime opportunity to heal from this childhood hurt and provide a nurturing environment for children. Catherine Chamberlain is an associate professor with La Trobe University, and currently leads a large community-based participatory action research project called Healing the Past by Nurturing the Future, which aims to co-design perinatal awareness, recognition, assessment and support strategies for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander parents experiencing complex childhood trauma. So firstly, thank you for joining us today and welcome. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yes, sure. So I'm a descendant of the Trollway people from the northeast coast of Tasmania around the Bay of Fires area, beautiful beaches. I trained as a paediatric nurse and a midwife about 30 years ago. And I've really worked all over the place in um, disaster settings like Rwanda, Somalia, South Sudan as a midwife where I met my partner. And then we worked in the Kimberleys for a while and with the Flying doctor service. So really right around Australia with that job. And then I moved to Melbourne to start a family and had my two beautiful boys around 20 years ago, and that's when I started getting involved in public health research and mainly around this pregnancy and birth and what we can do during this really critical parenting time to improve the health of um, parents and babies.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about the Healing the Past project and why it's been important for you to work on this project?
1: It's been a hugely important project you know, for me, as I said, it's been a culmination of different threads of information coming over the, over the years. But it's a, a Lowerture Institute and in National Health Medical Research funded project, working with an incredible bunch of colleagues that are with a psychological background or mental health background, social work, statistics, research, maternal and child health, parenting, you know, really exciting And the aim of the project is to work with communities and community organisations to co-design strategies to identify and support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander parents experiencing complex trauma. We've been working really hard the past three years to look really carefully at the international evidence, talk with elders and parents. We've had three really amazing workshops, co-design workshops, um, to co-design an assessment tool and different strategies to support parents. And at the moment, we're working through some in, we've got parents that are currently helping us to validate an Aboriginal complex trauma and strengths questionnaires, and we're really you know, hugely grateful for that. I guess it's been important for me to work in this area for both professional and personal reasons, so professionally as an epidemiologist and the evidence for this compounding intergenerational effects of complex trauma impacting on health of our mob is just overwhelming the more we learn the more important it clearly is and it shows up in the numbers all the time you know the that quarter of people who smoke is attributed to childhood trauma huge proportion of people with obesity a huge amount of violence and some studies are suggesting that the effects of adverse childhood experiences or complex trauma may be as much as poverty or being poor which has always been the huge you know the thing that's had the biggest impact on public health that is the elephant in the room and that it's clearly looks as though childhood trauma is also another really big issue that we need to be understanding a lot more about but personally it's always been important like I really struggled when my kids were young and I ended up having an acute psychotic episode you know being involuntarily admitted to hospital which was huge for me I hadn't ever imagined anything like that would happen. I had like six months off work and 12 months on antipsychotic medication. It was just like being hit by a bus I didn't see coming. I never expected it. And it was when I was in the recovery phase, the psychiatrist was asking you know, lots of questions about uh, about my history. And because I had been removed from my family, I was told that was likely to be a contributing factor and I was really shocked because I was working in this area of public health and thought that I knew all the risk factors and things like that but I'd never even heard of this as an issue at that time and it was actually quite opposite to what you know my lovely case manager at the time she used to say lovely reassuring things like if you can get through this you can get through anything that kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type thinking but now I've learned that actually that wasn't true even though it probably helped me to feel like that um, and I'd really love to do now what I can with this project so that other parents um, can hopefully you know not get hit by that bus and um, it, you know it really was pretty fine, tiring, tiring, awful experience so really important to you know do what we can to try and make that transition as less distressing as possible
0: it's such an important thing, and, and sh- thank you for sharing that, Kath. Why is understanding the perinatal period really important for parents during this time?
1: Well, it's hugely important. That, so having a baby is a huge life transition for both mums and dads, and importantly, of course, also for babies. So birth and death are the biggest events that we celebrate. We've known this for thousands of years. It's part of all of our history. It's critical for every dimension of our well-being. So physically, spiritually, emotionally and relationally as we welcome this new baby into the world. And people who have that experience and knowledge, of traditional knowledge, talk about it being a gift and a connection to our ancestors. And from a research point of view, there's overwhelming evidence that pregnancy in the first couple of years after birth or the first thousand days, as Carrie Arubina talks about, is absolutely critical for time for healthy starting life, and what we what happens at this time can have lifelong consequences for health and well being. And the World Health Organization certainly put, talked about the critical importance of nurturing care in this time. And it's more effective, you know, any support we can provide at this time is way more effective than if it's provided later in life. So it's a hugely important time, and and worth it. Anything that can be done. <laughs>
0: Well, you're setting a foundation, aren't you?
1: Mm, Absolutely, that's a good way of putting it.
0: So do you want to talk to me a little bit more about complex trauma and expand on what that means?
1: So most of the trauma research that's been done has been around post-traumatic stress disorder and war, but there's growing recognition that most people are not traumatised by war, but by their own childhood experiences. And there's been recently been... International consensus to recognise a cluster of distress symptoms uh, that people may experience following what's described as traumatic experiences of a prolonged nature or repeated adverse events from which separation is not possible. And most commonly this is childhood maltreatment. And it's called and they're calling this um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex trauma. It's only been included in the ICD 11, the International Classifications of Diseases, version 11 by the World Health Organization in 2018. So it's all quite new in terms of Western scientific understanding, but of course it's been something that Aboriginal people have been talking about for a long time and Judy Atkinson and others have been talking about for decades. So these symptom clusters include what they call, and these are technical terms, so but I'll describe them sort of effect or emotional dysregulation so having you know, blowing up easily, a negative self-concept or low self-esteem so not feeling good about ourselves and relational disturbances so having trouble you know keeping meaningful deep relationships that are so important for us. So in addition and these those three things in addition to the previous recognized PTSD symptoms from other one-off events, such as the re experience events or reliving, the memories that keep coming back, the flashbacks, avoidance, so that's trying to avoid anything that resembles that initial threat, and having this constant sense of threat that the world's a dangerous place to live in. There's still a little bit of disagreements. So we don't know exactly how many people are experiencing complex trauma. And there's lots of different terms being used, such as relational developmental trauma. But we think, you know, it's, it's possibly somewhere around one in five people in Australia might be experiencing this based on some studies of PTSD symptoms that we've read.
0: Could you share with us a little bit about why it's important for parents to understand trauma in relation to parenting?
1: So there's three main reasons why it's really important to understand parents' trauma in relation to parenting. First of all, there's an increased risk of those complex trauma-related distress symptoms being triggered during the transition to parenting. So having a child might stir up some of those childhood memories and responses. There's a lot of things that happen when we're pregnant, when we're giving birth and breastfeeding, particularly in maternity care settings, that can be triggering. Women can also have heightened fear responses due to the Physiological changes during pregnancy, and that's actually a naturally a, a protective response to protect the baby. They may have had previous birth trauma that can also be triggered. There may be increased risk of family violence, that is well described. It can be increased financial insecurity if people are losing their jobs and all those additional stresses like housing and things like that. And some parents actually describe their experiences of maternity care as, as being reminiscent of some aspects of childhood trauma. And it's really important that we understand this, and as care providers, that we do what we can to recognise and minimise those risks. But also as parents, to understand that we're not going crazy; that these are, you know, natural responses that can happen at this time. Because otherwise, if you're not aware of it, and most of the time people haven't linked these experiences to those early childhood experiences, because they happened such a long time ago, so it can be experienced as, you know, distressing. The most important thing, of course, is that despite all of these risks, which are huge, becoming a a parent is the absolute best time for healing from complex trauma. So parents, we know from studies, they almost exclusively report post-traumatic change at this time to be positive rather than negative, which is at other times of their life, people describe it in different as both positive and negative. And we know from longitudinal studies of youth in detention centres that have been done in America, not in Australia, that this is a real, really once in a lifetime blip that people can really turn their lives around and really have some positive change. And there's lots of possible reasons for this and still some really exciting research being done. But it's really around the love that babies bring into the world with them that we've always known as midwives, and you know we're all geared to attach and to love our babies. And babies have all these magical things that they do to make us want to look after them and love them. That's that's how they survive. And it's this mutually reinforcing process of nurturing love that is the healing cell for trauma, and that is really the inspiration for the project. We call it Healing the Past by Nurturing the Future because it's that process of healing through loving and nurturing that we want to really try to support during during this work. Um, and the other third thing of course is that it's the first time since childhood that people see care providers and service providers. So we really want to, you know, make the most of those opportunities to make sure that they're positive and helpful, not distressing and damaging.
0: Yes, and reinforcing past bad experiences with services.
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. Could you
0: tell me a little bit more about attachment from an Aboriginal worldview perspective?
1: So attachment or bonding is a really, you know, it it is a bit of a controversial thing. Not everybody quite agrees with the Western ways that it is described, but in the Western way that it's described as You know the important survival mechanisms for babies are dependent on adults for a long time, and this increases you know chances of survival. And it's and there's all different things that babies do when they come in. It's just magic if you know they will literally climb up a mum's tummy and find food and do all these things and gugah and and you know it's really lovely. So that is the sort of Western construct of attachment essentially in that you know as they say in a secure nurturing relationship you know parent responds sensitively to the baby and and responds to all their needs for food and security and comfort and if it's confusing or hostile this can create problems but it's it's around that secure attachment that's really important The concept of connectedness is more of an Aboriginal concept and it's seen as absolutely central to social and emotional well-being for Aboriginal people. So it's this connectedness to our body, our spirits, our ancestors, each other, country and community. And really it's something I'm learning about myself in this project because coming from Tasmania, I don't have that traditional knowledge or Aboriginal knowledge and I'm, I'm really grateful to be learning a lot about it. But it seems to me to be more of a sophisticated and nuanced understanding about a lot more than the attachment explanations that I've had with all the scientific things. It's really a deep, rich, spiritual understanding and, and a feeling about how important all this is that's really core. And there's so many cultural practices that are built in to help this important process of connectedness to happening i'm really interested in you know i think in relation to complex trauma it's essentially a relational trauma so this deep wisdom expertise and knowledge about connectedness is something that's central to healing and i really believe it's something that is useful for you know obviously it's critical for us as aboriginal people but it's something that aboriginal people really are the international experts in and, you know, we should really be celebrating this and everybody needs to know this, learn this.
0: You speak about a deep ancient wisdom in Aboriginal parenting. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So, again, this is stuff that I'm, you know, still learning about too myself, but from people like Michelle McMahon and, and Laopo Lima and others. But, you know, it's really important to remember that Prior to colonisation, Aboriginal children were far healthier and happier than European children were at the time. So we didn't send our kids down to work in mines. We didn't send them off to go to boarding schools, you know, where they were harshly punished and treated quite cruelly, you know, for just behaving naturally. Those, these were things that Europeans brought with them, with colonisation, these practices. So when I, I think this is an area that's been really seriously suppress that we really need to try to relearn. I mean, there were huge punishments for practising culture that have been, in, and you know, one of the threats for practising it was in Victoria, I know, that I've heard about is having the youngest child taken away. And those have really seriously undermined people's confidence and it's done a huge amount of damage. And I think it's an area that we desperately need to be reclaiming and relearning because there's so much wisdom there. And like I mentioned, there's Aboriginal scholars in this area now like Yorta Yorta woman Michelle McMahon and Yongyu woman who are really exploring this and, and this in more detail, which is really exciting. And we're learning more about, you know, from, from these Aboriginal scholars. So when babies were born, there's rich practices around caring for preg- parents in pregnancy and birth, many of which were centred around nurturing that strong relational development so included things like babies literally being born onto country, into the earth, um, being placed into a coolaman that's been carved by dad and smells of dad, which is really, and when I talk about the wisdom, I find it really interesting to read all of this because I always think about the what we also know from the Western science around children's development and what they're ready for and, you know, when they're born, they can only see about 30 centimetres, but they have really strong hearing and smell in particular. Smell is really important for a newborn baby. And a lot of those traditional practices were centred around smell and sound. And so each, you know, family member talks about people having a sound that each family member would make so they can become familiar with the sound of that person. And when you think about it in terms of a baby feeling secure, that repeated security, the familiar sounds of people around, building connections with people, key people in the family in a sequence, an organised sequence, that again is around security, not bombarding them with all the strangers on the first day, celebrating milestones around people, what children do in recognising people, other people, the sounds that they make about recognising their country, the milestones that are celebrated are not putting a red block on top of a blue block. They're really these rich relational developmental milestones that are really critical. And, you know, so I think that's the, when I'm thinking about the, the Aboriginal wisdom, it's, it's those really deep, insightful, you know, long-held traditions that have worked for such a long time. and relearning them now, recognising how rich and important they are and bringing that, you know, back.
0: And giving it value, making sure that we respect and honour that and the families, you know, it's so important.
1: Absolutely.
0: What have you found to be the factors contributing to parents' anxiety in seeking help?
1: I think there's quite a few. One of the biggest things that comes up for us has been fear of losing their child and practical child protection services being involved, which is really concerning because that is yet another threat that's being posed in there and it's not always helpful. I mean, we're all really concerned about child safety, obviously. but I think that the way that the involvement at the moment it's not worked out, it's not thought through, we don't have enough wisdom in it. I think we need to really be thinking through how to do this a lot lot better and it's been done now. It's really concerning. I think services not being culturally emotionally safe is really important as well, and shame and yeah, shame is such a big thing. So we know that parents have got so many hopes and dreams for having a happy life with their new baby. It's a really chance for a fresh start and for their child to have a different life to what they might have had. So that's a big thing. I think the another thing that is important is that often parents feel that they have to be perfect. There's this thing, and particularly parents if they've experienced Childhood trauma themselves, you know, we feel like we have to do everything perfectly. And parents have described this thing of not knowing what not to do, but not knowing what to do, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, which sets us all up for trying to be perfect, which is not realistic, it's not achievable, it creates a lot of anxiety and stress. And really, you know, good enough parenting is what we're all aiming. We're all human and actually. Kids seeing that you're human is all part of their learning as well. So, What are some of the protective factors for Aboriginal families? So we've been actually talking a lot about this with families, saying, you know, what keeps you strong? So I was really pleased to see this question. And what parents have been saying that really keeps them strong is this connectedness, of course, comes up as number one, being connected to each other as partners, to um, family, friends and community, having Connection to country, being able to, a lot of people have that as down is really important. Culture is definitely productive. We're seeing more and more research growing about how, you know, this culture, and you know, I guess if we think about it in a Western sense, how deprived people feel if they don't have art, music, and all of that type of culture, it is the same for us Aboriginal people. You know, culture is rich and deep, and it's a part of us that we, you know, that we all need. The other things that people say is really important is protective, and that we really know is having somewhere to live, actually having a house, having enough money to eat and to feed your kids, to feed you, you know, enough money to buy food and feed your kids, and have an income. It's really important. Hard to emphasize how important having stability and just so practical day-to-day support. Another thing is having something to have fun to enjoy, so being able to experience joy. Something that you feel that you can do, that you feel good about yourself, so developing some skills and, you know, if it's playing the guitar or the some sort of musical instrument or being able to run around the block or whatever it is, but just having something that gives you joy and something that you feel that you can actually, do, you know, do so that you're feeling strong and develop that confidence. And one thing that one parent told us that just always resonates with me is we just have fun. That's what we do. And that actually having fun is we put that off as something fluffy sometimes in, in science and research, but actually having fun is really important, I think, for keeping strong. They say the family that laughs together stays together, and I think that is true. Um, and the other things that have come up is people do talk about having support being important too, so professional support can be helpful. And having role models in people's lives, being able to set healthy boundaries is another one. I think that is important that we all need to be able to do. And being physically and emotionally healthy. So having you know, attention to diet and exercise that I'm really guilty of not doing, but you know, that is also really important.
0: Tell me a little bit more about birthing on country. Why is it so effective?
1: So birthing on country is it's really. Should be understood, I think, in the modern day where a lot of us live in the city, as a metaphor or a model of care. So it's a it's a metaphor for the best start in life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies and families, because it provides an integrated, holistic, culturally appropriate model of care. It's not just around the biophysical outcomes and the you know how well the baby is. It's much broader than just labour and delivery. You know, we deliver pizzas, not babies. It deals with the sociocultural risk as well as the sort of spiritual issues as well. And it's effective because it it brings in what we're talking about, relearning that millennia of wisdom in birth. And you can have birth on country. I mean, it is the dilemma now is, you know, if you need to have a caesarean section or you have a very high-risk pregnancy and you need a lot of medical care, does that exclude you from being able to give birth on country? And we would say no. I mean, a lot of people living in urban areas are actually on country. And also we can adapt things to fit in with what we want. We don't have to do things. We can still have a culturally safe birth and a birth on country and, and modify that to pick people's way that they're you know, living at the moment. So we can, people can keep the placenta and have like a ceremonial birth back if, they, if they're living somewhere else but again this all needs to be worked out because it is a bit confusing sometimes people say you know if you birthing on country is about going out and giving birth in the middle of the bush somewhere with no medical care and that isn't always the case although people can do that as well if it's safe to do so I think it's really important to really respect people's wishes to you know give birth on country for a number of reasons I think It often is denied, I think people are sometimes afraid of it in maternity care settings, thinking that people are rejecting medical care when it might be life-saving. But I think we need to be able to have that discussion and if people are not wanting to come into maternity care, have an honest discussion, not be afraid of it, and think about always making sure that people have choice. So if you don't, if somebody is wanting to give birth on country, it's okay, well, why... You, and if, you, if people are genuinely worried, I think we should be having that discussion to say, you know, honestly, I would be worried if you didn't have medical care for this birth. Is there anything that we can do to improve our services that you might want to come in? People might still say no, and we'd have to respect that. There might be things that we could actually do to make our service better, and that would be good. The other thing is that sometimes if people are wanting to not come in for care, it might be for other reasons, like they might be worried about their kids having to stay at home. And especially if they have to come in for four weeks before the baby's born, that can be a big issue. So, is there ways that we can improve the support at home as well as the care? So, they're really important things that we actually need to know. And because we're not having these discussions at the moment, we're not even working through them. And then, if it's still really important for people that, that you might be worried about their medical risk, and that's not a whole woman, what can we do to make um, having a baby away from medical care? as safe as possible, so there's a lot of things that we can actually do. So just not having the discussion, I think, is missing out on a lot, and it's actually placing people at more risk. And I think that regardless of that sort of three levels there that I think is important, regardless of all of that, I think we can still metaphorically provide a model of care that's like birthing on country, bringing all of that into the care that's provided, wherever that may be, and bringing together the best medical care as well as the best cultural care. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And draw on that millennial wisdom that we have, focusing on excellence in care, usually from a known person that somebody feels safe with and trusted. And it allows women to develop that relationship and to have that choice control and culture to keep strong and to really enrich this experience as a positive thing. And we've seen from one study in Queensland, the Birthing in Our Community study led by um, Sue Day and Yvette Rowe, and others, where they've implemented this model, they've had like a 50% reduction in preterm births, which is fantastic. You know, I mean, it really does work, this stuff.
0: So, what strategies have families found helpful in their healing to prevent the transmission of trauma?
1: Some of the strategies parents have talked to us about has been helpful because, this is, again, another question that we've been talking with parents about, and just the wisdom of what people say is fantastic. We'll just share some of that here with you. They include things like counselling and therapy, uh, but that's definitely not all. So talking to somebody, having somebody that they can confide in, having some group sessions can also sometimes help. But that's not for everybody. It is very, I would say with this, it's all very individualistic. Everybody has their own journey. These, these are different things that different people have said, and it's about having a choice of these things that's important. A lot of people talk about, Self-care activities and certainly looking after yourself, doing stuff that makes you give you that sense of joy is really important. Art can be really therapeutic and there's lots of reasons for that. It just switches off that whole part of that side of your brain and switches on the other side of your brain. Um, yoga has been shown to be really therapeutic and there's all sorts of physiological reasons why that might be helpful as well. You know, for some people, body work can be important. It needs to be at the right time people talk about spirituality as being important and that's where you know the cultural strategies and stuff can really be helpful as well and the other thing that we get a lot from parents is how good it is to feel as though they're contributing to something to help other parents so actually being able to help others is really important way of helping ourselves as well and people will often say that to, you know telling their story will help you know, and I guess for me personally, that's something that I find really helpful as well. Another thing that parents say they find helpful is being able to understand and make sense of the trauma, and that ties in a bit earlier to what we are saying about reflective functions. So trying to mentalise that and work out, this is about something that's happened to me, it's not what's wrong with me. You know, because so you have that sense with those triggers, and I know I have had that, where you feel like you are going crazy. So to be able to actually understand where that's all coming from and work out what's happening. It's like, I'm 50 now, it's taken me a long time to work this out. But I feel like, you know, that's been really helpful to understand that. And, of course, I think the other thing that's really helpful in healing, and it really is the healing salve is love, That is just so critical for us all. So being able to nurture your baby, have your loving relationships around you, it's really powerful. And you know, many parents talk about that healing through nurturing as being a really important journey. And certainly for me, that's you know, also been amazing. I just feel so grateful to have my two my lovely boys, <laughs> family and all of that. So
0: if you had a magic wand and you could see something, you know, any intervention taking place in practice, what would that be? Do you have any final words of wisdom?
1: Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> We do have a long list because we've been working for four years with parents or three years with families and communities to work out, you know, what might be helpful in this space. So we have been putting in a wish list and we'll keep putting in um, these. But one of them is what Carly Atkinson refers to as trauma-integrated maternity care. So we really want to look at strategies that improve awareness for trauma for around mums and dads, so having people that are working within our care services actually aware of what's going on, recognising those fight, fright and fight responses for what they are and thinking about how to provide safe care and minimising the risk of trauma. We want to do some work around skills with talking about trauma, so how to do the yarning, the less intrusive questions, having those safe conversations that are meaningful looking at the power imbalances and things like that and we have we hopefully be able to use the Aboriginal complex trauma and strengths approaches where we're actually using an Aboriginal developed tool that includes the concepts around connectedness and things that are important for us and importantly we need access to comprehensive holistic support services so like the ones that Kerry Arabina talks about in first thousand days is exactly what parents have described in this study we really support that, and we'd see the kind of work around complex trauma fitting in under an as like well, under that kind of umbrella program and critically what I'd really love to see you know with all of this is to start to reclaim some of that ancient wisdom that we've had so how do we provide care for parents who are experiencing complex issues so in, as a midwife you know for thousands of years we've had a really sophisticated system of mentoring young midwives to become those wise women. So we've had, we would identify, somebody would be identified in the village as having those kind of aptitudes and interests. You'd start off sweeping the floor and doing the gardening and then you would gradually start to assist with the birth and as you were ready for more knowledge, you'd be given more knowledge. And then you would pass up the line and you'd be mentoring someone else and you always have somebody more senior that you can go to if things become complex. And if they become really complex, you might talk to the circle of elders and other people who are um, midwives. And now I feel like we work in maternity care and we have so many experts there. We have, you know, fetal medicine specialists, we have anaesthetists, we have pediatricians, we have psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, midwives, nurses, every type of specialist you could imagine. We can look after babies that weigh less than a pound of butter. It's really truly remarkable. But if we get people with complex social issues, it still feels to me like it's too hard sometimes. People think this is too hard and often refer to child protection services sometimes without people's knowledge, even with unborn notifications, which is hugely distressing for everybody on a number of levels, including me, who doesn't even work there, let alone the staff that do, and for the parents, it's just horrendous to think about. But this is hard. And I do get that people are afraid of this in a way because we're all worried about children and we all want the best for children. Of course we do. But I feel that we really need to embrace this If anyone can do this, we can do this. We have to bring back that wisdom. We need to get really serious about this. We need to apply the same level of expertise that we have for looking after babies that weigh less than 400 grams as we do for looking after and supporting families that are dealing with distress and complex trauma and all of the complex issues that can come with that that have gone on for generations. I think that is my wish list is to bring back and to somehow have a a council of wisdom or, you know, bring it, it doesn't have to be just community members, although I think it'd be really important to have that community support involved, but to bring in that expertise around families. I know everybody's doing the best that we can at the moment, but I think, and even people working in child protection services would say that they're not. they don't have all the support they need, the expertise they need and all of that kind of thing. So how we can bring that back in, wrap all that support around, put the best possible community expertise and all other types of expertise um, to really... Because it's so important and we know that it's not always easy, particularly for families, but it can really make a huge difference and it's worth every cent of investment time investment in everything it will pay back a million fold
0: Thank you for joining us in our podcast series listening to stories of healing Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health Led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Program.